Hey everyone, welcome back to Hill City. I'm glad that we get to be together, even if we're not together in person. I hope that you feel very comfortable. You've got a good place to sit and we are gonna wrap up our series in the letter of Ephesians. We call this series First Love because we really wanted to get back to the basics of what our faith really means. And there's so much about this letter as we've seen over the last several weeks that just speaks directly into our culture today. And today's our very last uh, week in this series and we're wrapping up in Ephesians 6 in a passage that might be kind of familiar to some of you if you grew up in church, but I'm hoping that we might be able to see it a little bit differently today. The passage opens up with the words, be strong in the Lord. So we're kind of like taking everything that we've learned and we're hearing like the final last words of what it actually looks like to apply the gospel to our lives in the way that we see the world, the way that we see one another, and the way that we're equipped each day as we go into the world. So I'm going to do that this way. I want to talk kind of through how the world sees the world and how God sees the world, how the enemy works in the world. I think it's a really important part of this passage and really for our own understanding, how the enemy works in the world and how the enemy can tempt us as believers and then what we can do about it, what we do about it individually and what we can do about it communally. So that's kind of where we're going. And I want to start with some very obvious information about the world according to the world. Just yesterday, there was a study released by the American Psychological Association. They had done kind of a quick poll of several thousand America, uh, several thousand Americans in the last week. And they found out that adults are experiencing stress on levels that they've never seen in the last 15 years that they've done these studies. The top sources of stress were the rise in prices of everyday items because of inflation, um, supply chain issues, global uncertainty, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, potential retaliation from Russia. And on top of all that, we were already reaching unprecedented levels of stress because of the results of being in a pandemic together for the last two years. Not to mention in all of that, that stress on top of stress, what was also found was that people's coping behaviors have kind of run out and that these entrenched negative behaviors are continuing as we enter into this third year of real a dark time for everyone. And, and that's what the world is according to the world. That's what the world looks like. That's the world that we're immersed in. That's the world that we have to live in. But like we've talked about through this whole series, Ephesians is a book about revelation and reconciliation. It's about the way that God is revealing the truth to us and then what it looks like to actually be reconciled to him, what it looks like to be reconciled to others. So I just want to make sure that before we go anywhere, we just level set. We are all stressed, level set. We are all experiencing this world and this kind of darkness that's new maybe to some of us um, in new ways. But here's the good news. This is exactly what the gospel's for. This is exactly what this letter is about in a very dark culture when it was first written. So we can find sort of our hope in new ways again when we go back to the letter. So what is the world according to God? Let's go there now. The world according to God. Ephesians 6 verse 10 starts here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, listen to this, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, 
that's where we just have to stop for a second. And we've talked about this week after week, but our whole world is designed for us to not believe that there's anything more than our circumstances that we have to deal with. And right at the beginning and end of Ephesians, we are reminded that there is a cosmic struggle going on, that there is so much more going on than meets the eye, that we're a part of something that is about more than the something we can see. And that alone takes faith to believe because we're so entrenched in this idea that our circumstances are what we can control and that we've got the control over this world. But here we see, now there's like something much greater going on and we wanna be reminded of that again in the end. But more important than just that is this verse 10, that actually what we're called to be is strong in the Lord. And so before we go any further, I just wanna take us back to Ephesians 1, where we began. And just look at this passage that we started with, this idea of like, what is this world really about? And as Paul is praying for believers, he says, I'm gonna pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that we're actually gonna have our eyes opened to a different reality in this world so that you can know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That power that we experience is the same as the power that was raising Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. And in this power, he is now far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You see, when we start the letter of Ephesians, we're reminded that our hope does not come from our circumstances. Our hope comes from Christ. And Christ is the one who has already won the battle. Christ is the one who was already victorious. And that power that raised Christ from the dead, that's the power that we get to have and experience in this world. That is the hope of the gospel. And so when we go through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we learn all about what that looks like to actually understand the gospel, to know that grace. And then in Ephesians 4, we get that changeover where we hear, okay, now how are you gonna live your life worthy of the calling you've received? Because of what God has done, because of what he's laying out for us to understand about who Jesus is, now we're gonna talk about what it looks like to live into that life. So for the last several weeks, we've talked about what does that look like in our households, in our marriages, in our families? What does it look like to submit to one another? It's all about kind of the way that we engage with the world. And all of that is connected with this passage. So often in this passage, which we're gonna get into the armor of God in just a moment, a lot of times this passage is disconnected from the letter. So I wanted to make sure that we were still putting it where it belongs, that we're not just talking about this this imagery and this idea on a day-to-day basis outside of the depths of what we've learned from the letter of Ephesians, that our hope comes from Christ, that Christ is already in authority, and that we are living now into our calling because of that truth. The world according to God is that Ephesians 1, we're already walking in victory because of Christ. Ephesians 4, we're called to work worthy of the calling that we've received. And then Ephesians 6, what is it going to look like to actually stand strong in the Lord? But what are we standing strong against? Let's remember what it actually says. It says that you're going to have to take your stand against the devil's schemes. So I spent some time this week really processing through how does the enemy work in our world? Because the great coup of the enemy is to make us think that there's not an enemy. So what does it look like to actually see how that might be impacting you, what it looks like in our world? And so I kind of went to three different places in scripture. I just want to show you guys three ways that scripture tells us that the enemy is scheming 
in the world, okay? So the first one is that the enemy schemes with subtle, powerful lies. Look what Jesus said about the enemy. When he lies, this is Jesus speaking of Satan. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. All the time in my previous work as a counselor, in the times that I spend coaching people, most of the time when people are experiencing obstacles in their life, a lot of times there's lies underneath, lies that they've believed about their identity, lies they've believed about the Lord, lies they've believed about other people. It is so deeply entrenched in us that we have these subtle, powerful experiences of lies that we begin to act on. So the enemy operates in subtle and powerful lies. The second way the enemy operates is by masquerading as light. So oftentimes if we could see, if we saw evil, we'd be like, that's evil. Like we know when we see something that it's bad, but it's often when something seems like subtle and sort of good that we are more likely to be deceived. Second Corinthians says it this way, for no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm not telling these, these things to you to scare you because remember, we just talked about the world according to God is that we already have victory in Christ. But I am telling you these things because in Ephesians 1, it says, what does it look like to have our eyes be opened? And so often I think that we are just sort of lulled into believing that I need to be stressed like the world is stressed or that I'm fearful like the world is fearful or my circumstances are what makes me who I am. And yet we've got this completely different operating system that God is inviting us into. And the enemy is scheming to keep us out of that reality, to keep us away from that truth. The third way that the enemy works that we see in scripture is that he uses questions to lead us to temptation. He designs questions that he will ask of us to confuse us, to confound us, to discourage us. And ultimately where those questions lead is toward independence from God and suspicion toward God and toward others. I love how Dallas Willard talks about this when he's talking about Eve in the garden. And it says, when Satan undertook to drew Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. Because what the enemy said to Eve in the garden is, are you sure? Or is that what God really said? He introduced an idea. And that idea was that God could not be trusted and that she needed to act on her own to secure her well-being. You see, the enemy is not that creative. He's been doing the same thing since the beginning of time. And we see the moves that he makes in scripture. He's been watching us as people. So we should certainly watch him to see how he operates. And the way that he operates is like this. He moves us to suspicion toward God. And this idea that we have to act on our own to secure our well-being. I wanted to pull out some lies that I think that we can believe. I don't think all of these will apply to you on every level, but I'm guessing that one or two may. Let me give you a few sentences to consider as ways that you may have experienced this subtle but powerful lie that begins with something good, but then turns it to ultimate independence from God. Here we go. My interior world is the real world. When people validate the rules, I must make things right. Also, if I'm the violator, then I must be angry at myself. Number two, I can do it. And if I don't do it, then it won't get done. And if it doesn't get done, it will be my fault. Number three, I am my achievements and my persona. It's okay for me to fake it as long as it leads to success. Because if I don't succeed, I won't be loved. 
Number four, no one knows what it's like to be me and that makes me utterly alone. I wish I were anyone else because there's no way others feel the way I do. Number five, there isn't enough for everyone. I need to get what I can and keep it before it's all gone. Number six, the only way I can avoid pain is to be prepared and I won't be prepared unless I'm driven by fear. Number seven, I'm sure this thing will fill me up. If it doesn't, maybe one more will do the trick. Number eight, I'm not concerned with right or wrong. I'm here to get things done. If I push away everyone in my life but have control, that's fine. Number nine, the world and my relationships are too chaotic. I need to compensate for chaos by doing as little as humanly possible. Now, for some of you out there who are Enneagram freaks like me, you may recognize that these are actually the core beliefs, the core lies of the nine types on the Enneagram, these personality temperaments. And I'm grateful to Matt, our care pastor, who put these together for me. And when I take away the, the personality temperament stuff and I just give you the sentences, I did all this because I want you to see how subtle, powerful lies that start with what feels like a real need in our nature actually ultimately lead us away from God. And this is the way that the enemy schemes. So we have to know that when we enter into the end of Ephesians and we enter into our life and we're given this very practical imagery about what it means to put on the armor of God, the reason that we're putting on that armor, the reason that we are getting sort of suited up for the world is because the enemy is scheming to make sure that we can keep some of these lies powerfully working in our operating system, keeping us from trust and freedom in God, keeping us sort of stuck in these places where we're moving away from God rather than toward him. C.S. Lewis said, through pride, the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every vice. It is, com it is the completely anti-God state of mind. But what the enemy wants to make sure you do is that you don't think it's actually pride. The best thing the enemy can do is make us think that this is just us trying to protect ourselves. This is just me making my way in the world. This is just because I'm fearful or because I'm lonely or because I need more or because people will only love me if I'm successful. All of these core lies that we see represented in these Enneagram types is exactly the way the enemy wants to work. He's not gonna hit you with a stick like Dallas Willard said, he's gonna hit you with an idea. And so if we know that to be true, the enemy's greatest scheme is to make you doubt God and come up with your own ideas. So what does it look like if we understand, okay, how the world works, how God says the world works, how the enemy works in the world, and then what is our response? How do we respond? Well, according to Ephesians, this is how we respond. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then this is what it says we are to do and how we are to respond. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after having done everything to stand. All right, now I gotta make circles because listen to this. What do we have here? We've got stand your ground. Let me put that in white so y'all can see it. Ooh, let's go yellow. 
Stand your ground, and after you've done everything, stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So what we're called to do here is not aggressively go against the world, but to stand firm in what? In the Lord. We are not called to independence. We are called to be in dependence of our God. And the reason I bring that up is because there's been like a little bit of this like aggressive machismo around this passage, which can, when it's taken out of context, feel like, look at me, I'm gonna get suited up for the world. The world is evil and dark, which it says it is, but I'm gonna get suited up in this aggressive anti-people stance to the world. And if we do that, we are again just falling for the enemy's schemes. Because what the enemy wants us to believe is that we have got to make these calls for ourselves, That we cannot trust God with our future, with our circumstances, with our relationships, with our difficulties. We can't trust God with these intractable situations that we may find ourselves in. We actually have to make our own plans. And so there's something real um, appealing about the idea that Paul is drawing from Roman soldiers as his way to describe what it looks like to be a Christian. But actually on a deeper dive into this passage just this week, It actually isn't about Roman soldiers. That's not where it seems that Paul is drawing his information. Take a look at this little table I put together for you. The first three things that we're called to be in are truth, righteousness, and peace. And when you see those words in that middle column, this is straight from what we just read in Ephesians. And then over here, we've got these parallels. And the parallels are from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet that was written 600 years before Jesus. And this particular section that I pulled for you, this is all about who Jesus is gonna be. This is a prophecy about the Messiah, the one who was to come. And look at how closely connected the words are. Stand firm with the belt of truth around your waist. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness around his waist. Talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Talks about the breastplate of righteousness. The helmet of salvation on his head. And this idea of your feet fitted with the readiness that come from the gospel of peace also in Isaiah. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. You see, it's often been interpreted like this is this aggressive idea of this anti-people stance toward the world. But actually what's happening here is that Paul is not drawing from Roman soldiers. He's drawing from the divine warrior who is God. He's drawing from these words that have been written long ago about who the Messiah would be. The armor we're putting on is not about like human military aggression, but it it actually parallels the characteristics of God. And so when I think about what's written there, here's what I kind of wrote about that. When we ask what it means to be a divine warrior in this world, we should ask what it looked like for Jesus to be a divine warrior in this world. We don't want to separate this passage out from who our Jesus is. And when you look at the way Jesus worked in the world, if you look at the way Jesus loved in the world, if you look at who Jesus moved toward, toward, if you look at Jesus' stance toward grace, toward truth, toward justice, then we're actually able to understand that when we are putting on the armor of God, we are putting on the characteristics of Christ in the world. 
that this is no different than the words that we read in Colossians about being clothed with patience and gentleness and kindness. But what we do know that is very clear is that it is an intentional act to put on this every day, to put on this idea that we're not being strong in ourselves, that we're standing strong in the Lord. And that yes, we are engaged in a fight, but that fight against the powers and principalities is going to be best won by the way that we show up, the way that Jesus showed up. And Jesus showed up humble and kind. And Jesus showed up patient and loving. So that aggressive stance doesn't really have a place in this passage, even though we are invoking this military language. I do like this picture though of this Roman soldier, mostly because I like the shield here. Because as we move through the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, we get to the shield, right? The shield of faith. And I like this because this is an accurate version of what a shield would look like. A Roman soldier would have like a, maybe even like a three foot by four foot shield. And the idea behind that shield is that you could actually crouch behind it. And so when flaming arrows would be a real thing, a real thing they would experience. So when flaming arrows would come at the shield, you could defend yourself by crouching under and taking refuge under that shield. It's not like Captain America shield. It's a very different experience. It's a defensive posture. And I've always been drawn to the idea in this passage that, that these firing, flaming arrows of the evil one, they have to come so close that you can feel the thud against your shield. They come so close that you can feel the heat of them. And oftentimes when I'm encouraging believers and in my own life I've experienced this too, when we are actually experiencing that kind of spiritual battle, when we feel the flaming arrows coming at us, we've got a few ways that the enemy tempts us in that time because those arrows are gonna come close. They're gonna hit the shield. We don't have like a force field that's far away from us that's isolating us from these experiences. They come right up close. But it's that shield of faith that actually keeps us strong. So what does it look like when we feel tempted to sin as believers? Here's sort of the three ways that I've seen the enemy work in believers today, kind of connected to those lies, right? This idea that he has this ability to, to plant subtle, powerful lies, that he likes to masquerade as light, and then that what, how does he tempt us away from God? So the first way that I see the enemy working when we feel those flaming arrows coming towards us is with shame and guilt, that create a self-focus. So what happens is we maybe even hear a sermon like this and we're like, oh, I'm messing up. I'm not doing it right. I'm not being good enough. And we begin this shame cycle and it actually turns us inward. So now we're in shame and guilt and we're focused inward and we're having this like self-focused paralysis. And guess what? The enemies won that battle because now we're no longer doing Ephesians 4. We're no longer living out worthy of the calling we've received. Now we're just living out in a shame cycle where most of the time we're just thinking about ourselves, thinking about how bad we are, thinking about what we need to do to make it right. And we're actually missing the calling. We're missing what it looks like to be love in the world. And I know that's one of the ways that I am deeply tempted and that I've seen others be tempted. The second way I see the enemy working in believers today is by seeing people as evil rather than seeing people as victims of evil. 
And this is crazy, but this is like my favorite line from the Hunger Games that actually like feels so pertinent to this moment. And in the Hunger Games, this is in no way a spoiler alert, but in the Hunger Games, if you watch it, it's like an apocalyptic. I mean, have you, has anyone not watched it or know what I talk about? But anyway, the girl is in the Hunger Games. Katniss is in this experience where people are killing each other, et cetera. And at one point, actually at several points through the trilogy, people who are working, conspiring to actually overthrow the evil that's happening around them, look at Katniss, who's the heroine of the, of the films, and say, don't forget who the real enemy is. It's like a constant refrain, don't forget who the real enemy is. And one of the ways that our enemy wants to work is for you to forget who the real enemy is. And for you to think that the real enemy is a group of people or people who are against you or this person in your life, so that rather than seeing a person, even a person who's hurt you, as a person who's a victim of evil, not evil themselves, we actually start to believe in that idea that the people themselves are evil. But we know from Ephesians 6, it says so clearly that your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Your struggle is against these spiritual forces. The third way that the enemy works is in false teaching. Teaching that twists the truth of the gospel, but goes undetected that we may not see or experience that that's happening. It's one of the reasons why we love to show you the scripture when we're teaching it. We love to help you get into scripture. That's why we care about discipleship so much and we invite you into discipleship tracks because we want you to be believers who know how to discern true teaching and know what the gospel really is in our life. So we know here in this armor of God that we have the shield of faith and then there's only one offensive weapon. There's only one weapon that we actually use forward in this whole passage. And that one weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If you struggle with believing in shame, if fear, condemning narratives, then going on the offensive is to be able to answer lies with the truth. Going on the offensive is to be able to look at those statements, those false beliefs, and know how to go to scripture and use that as a way to reinforce the truth in your life. You see, the armor of God is not a call to aggressive battle. It's not a call to a battle of culture wars, political war wars. It's not about trivializing or tribalizing in our day. This passage is just a continuation of where we've spent the last several weeks. It's about a humble mutual submission. It's about an everyday process and journey where we actually are choosing to be strong, not in ourselves, but in the Lord, to put on the full armor of God. So finally, at the end of this passage, this is what Paul says. And by the way, in the midst of all this, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I can fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So I wanted to make this kind of the conclusion of our time today because we're given a couple of weapons in this struggle. The first weapon is the word of God, which we've already talked about. How do we answer the lies that are so subtle and powerful in our life with actually the truth of God's word? Because that's what God says works. That is the offensive weapon that we're given. But we're also given prayer. And I love this like sort of personal 
conclusion to the letter where we see how it works to love one another communally and what it looks like to be a leader and the people loving each other communally. And what Paul pulls out is that he, he sort of exhorts the believers to pray in the spirit all occasions, all kinds of prayers, all kinds of requests. He says, keep on praying for one another and then also to pray for him that he can actually continue to move forward with the gospel. And I love the rhythm of this kind of prayer that we can look to our day and when we put on this idea of just sort of putting on the image of the armor of God, that we're gonna be equipped for this life that we're living in, that we need to stand strong in the world and the place that God has called us, but that we've got this weapon, which is the sword of the spirit, that we would know the, the word of God and that we have this incredible opportunity for prayer. And that prayer looks like um, individually, all kinds of requests, all kinds of occasions, right? But prayer also looks like communally that we're called to pray for one another and that we're called to pray for each other no matter our position, wherever we are. And that Paul's full focus is actually on being able to declare the gospel. And that's just not for pastors. That's not for apostles and for Pauls in the world. That's for all of us. And so when I think about all this stuff that we're talking about, unprecedented stress. What does it look like to have an operating system that is the way that God actually defines the world? And then how is he calling us to live in the middle of that? What I think this is all about is at the end of the day, when we think about our struggles, when we think about hardship, I just had a coffee with a dear friend this morning and we were talking about what's been difficult. And I was reminded again that God is calling us though to ask this question. Is it helping you spread the gospel though? Are the struggles in your life, the things that you're going through, is God using them to actually help you spread the gospel? Is the way that you're living your life, the way you show up with hope, the way that you're vulnerable, the way that you connect, the way that you ask for prayer from a fellow believer, is it helping you spread the gospel? Because guess what, guys? We all need the gospel. We all need the gospel preached to us again and again. We all need to be reminded of God's grace. We all need to be reminded that we are not strong in ourselves. We are strong in the Lord. We all need to be reminded who the real enemy is. And so when we pray and when we invite others to pray for us, when we declare what we need prayer for, we can ask this question, how is this helping me spread the gospel? How is God calling me to be worthy of the calling that I've received in all the places that I am? And even if I'm deeply struggling, how might God use that deep struggle to allow me to connect to someone else, to actually ask for prayer, to not act like I've got it all together, to not act like I can live life independently of God, but that too, I need to admit and ask that someone would pray for me and that we can pray for one another. James chapter five says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Guess what guys, we're not righteous on our own. That's what we learned in Ephesians one. This incomparably great power is because of Christ. We're righteous because of Christ. We're made righteous because of him, which means that our prayer for each other can be powerful and effective. So as we close today, I just want to invite you with the people that you might be in your living room with, with someone who's a friend here at this church or another church, maybe today is the day that you reach out for prayer. If one of those sentences, those belief statements stuck out to you, maybe you share that with someone and you say, man, I'd love for you to pray for me because I think I'm believing a lie in my life and I want to be set free from that. Do you know how we work against the enemy's schemes? Every single way that this passage describes 
So I'm gonna close this in prayer. I'm gonna invite you to that conversation with your friends. What would it look like to ask for prayer today? To ask for prayer in what it looks like for you to be strong in the Lord in the place that he has you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its relevance in our life. We thank you that even though the world may feel dark around us, your light shines brightly. And I pray, God, that this truth would go deeply into our hearts, that we might look at this passage again and we might be reminded, these are the things I need for the life that you've given me. I need your righteousness, your salvation. I need my feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I need the sword that is the spirit, the word of God. And I need my fellow believers to pray for me and to pray with me. God, would you help that to become a part of our operating system as we live out this life that you've called us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again, you guys, for tuning in this week. We look forward to being back in person again next week. If you need any information about events, places that you can plug in, go to our website. That's also a place that you can give. We're so grateful for your generosity that helps us bless so many people as a church in our community and in our world. You can get all that information and also fill out a connect card or any questions that you have, we'd love to answer them for you. See you guys next week.